The last time Democrats and Republicans chose nominees for president, they held typical over-the-top affairs. Arenas packed with tens of thousands of party faithful. The chanting, the sea of posters, the confetti. This year's conventions will have none of that. No balloon drop, no long lines, and no candidates in any convention hall. And although the 2020 conventions are unprecedented, the political and social climate today isn't completely new. In this episode, we look back 100 years to 1920. America was emerging from a deadly pandemic, the end of World War I. Soldiers had come back to joyful welcomes, even though most of us were trying to forget the war. And women could finally vote. Womankind had entered the political arena and was apt to bust a corset. The country was also facing multiple crises. There were riots, race riots, with mobs trying to get their hands on prisoners. Over race, immigration, and the economy, much like today. Those who study American history, who nerd out over conventions and campaigns, see something familiar and maybe haunting in this dramatic political year. It was 100 years ago, but because it was a moment when the country was just in the midst of a set of really interlocking crises, each of which would have been incredibly significant on its own, but as a totality of experience, your one crisis after another really seems to, uh, to speak to a little bit of what we're going through today. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Lisa Desjardins. Nineteen twenty was the beginning of the jazz age. The first radio station went on air that year. This is KDKA. We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us, as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching. And electricity was spreading to millions of Americans. Yet, with all the promise of innovation, there were dark clouds over the country. Lots of people in the 20s had big ambitions for how you were not going to let the world descend into chaos again. It didn't work out so well, but they believed it. That's Beverly Gage. She teaches American Studies and History at Yale University, and we asked her to guide us through the 1920 conventions and election. First, I asked how the conflicts of the time were impacting the presidential election. We started with what was then called the Spanish flu pandemic. With the pandemic, of course, people weren't totally sure that it was over. We now know, looking back uh, from our perspective, that it really did peter out in, in 1919. But of course, there was a lot of uncertainty around that question. Um, and that had truly been a mass death experience, even looking at the war itself, as many soldiers died of the Spanish flu as died in combat in the First World War. Um, so that was both over and not 
over. And I think you could say the same thing of the war. Uh, it went from 1914 to 1918, was by far the most catastrophic war that the world had ever seen. The United States came in a little bit late and had uh, you know, somewhat of a more subdued experience of the war than, uh, than the European great powers did. But the questions of what was going to come out of that war, what the settlement was going to look like, was the United States going to enter the League of Nations? Were you going to have some sort of better world coming out of the war? Um, is still a pretty open question in 1920. So you've got this experience of very recent trauma in both ways, but also, you know, not, not a finished story by the time the election stirs up. Outgoing president, Democrat Woodrow Wilson, a lot of listeners will know this was a man with a sweeping vision, progressive push for a united world, a League of Nations, but he himself had become sick and was not running again, even though he wanted to. Yeah, you're right that Wilson is the towering figure of politics in some sense in this moment in 1920. He is the president, but he had fallen very ill uh, in 1919 in a way that I think a lot of people don't realize. He was really incapacitated. It was basically as if we didn't have a president um, for a lot of the end of 1919 into early 1920. And the other big towering figure of American politics had also just died in 1919, and that was Theodore Roosevelt. Um, so 1920 was really one of those blank slate years. You weren't going to have an incumbent. And as it turned out, the two candidates who were selected, James Cox on the Democratic side and Warren Harding on the Republican side, were pretty similar people in lots of ways. I mean, the most obvious is that they were both from Ohio. <laughs> we're talking about these two guys now because we know they were the candidates. But going into the conventions, the parties didn't. Can you talk about that kind of difference in the conventions, what these two conventions were like in particular? So we tend to think of conventions as these big political shows. We already know who the presidential candidate is. We know who the vice president's going to be. And, uh, and so they're just big pageants. Nothing much actually happens at the convention. Someone might make a good speech. There might be some you know, dramatic statement of principle. But uh, as conventions, not much is going on. That was really different in 1920. In fact, was different from most of American history. Um, so so in both the Republican and Democratic cases, they went into the convention with lots of different contenders in 1920. Um, and it took quite a while, actually, in both cases to figure out who the nominee was going to be. Um, on the Democratic side, there was uh, William McAdoo, who had been the Treasury Secretary. Uh, and then there was A. Mitchell Palmer, who had been the Attorney General. Um, McAdoo was actually Wilson's son-in-law, and so he was sort of the heir uh, to Woodrow Wilson, and uh, Palmer had become much more controversial because he had been sort of the figurehead of the 1919 and 1920 Red Scare. Um, but there were multiple ballots. I think there were several dozen ballots, actually, in 1920 before they uh, they finally settled on Cox. Whereas on the Republican side, uh, it wasn't clear at all who it was going to be. It was a pretty divided Republican Party. You had a conservative wing. You had a progressive wing. You were going to need to find someone who settled both of those parties. And they, they finally ended up with this uh, man who himself admitted that he was not qualified for the presidency. And that was, that was Warren Harding. What I think is fascinating about these two men and the differences between their two parties was sort of their vision for um, 
America and American identity. And we actually went through the archives and we found some sound of, of both of them. First, James Cox, Democratic candidate for president. He was pushing for this grand vision, sort of following up in the Woodrow Wilson spirit, the idea that this election was about America's greatness, about America winning the war. What America did needs no reiteration here. It is known of all men. History will acclaim it. Poets will find it an inspiration throughout the ages. And yet, there is not a line in the Republican platform that breathes an emotion of pride or recites our national achievements. What do you take away from that soundbite? Well, I think Wilson himself was so heavily identified with the war and the war effort. And then by 1919 into 1920, really identified with this internationalist vision of what the post-war settlement was supposed to look like. And part of that was the United States as a kind of grand broker of peace in the world, a beacon of democracy, um, a, a, a uh, a country that was going to stand for a kind of higher morality of a sort. Now, there are lots and lots of ways to critique that Wilsonian vision. Wilson ignored colonialism and the idea that he was kind of a preachy, grandiose, you know, self-important uh, uh, person in his own right, and that was kind of projecting this vision onto the world. Uh, but there were, of course, lots of people who saw this role for the United States, who believed in Wilson's vision, and I think particularly believed in the project of the League of Nations, which was, by 1920, sort of the last idealistic piece of the post-war settlement that was available. Um, and I think uh, we can read Cox's words as attempting to kind of hold on to that. Um, the Republicans, of course, because this is so heavily identified with Wilson, um, are attempting to differentiate themselves and, of course, to reject large pieces of that vision. And opposing that vision was Warren Harding. And he was basically saying, this is what I get, we need to calm everything down. Here's, here's some sound from Warren Harding, 1920. America's present need is not heroic, but healing. Not nostrums, but normal things. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. So I think Warren Harding there is partly rejecting this kind of Wilsonian internationalist vision, but he's also talking about many of the other crises that seem to be underway during these years. So you've just come out of a progressive era that was full of big moral ambitions, ambitious social projects, um, and Harding is sort of suggesting people are getting a little tired of that. 1919 in particular had been a year of incredible upheaval within the United States, real social turmoil. So you had 4 million people uh, going out on strike. You'd had a series of race riots in various American cities. And you'd also had a whole lot of revolutionary agitation, uh, most of it coming from sort of self-proclaimed revolutionaries on the left, anarchists, communists, people inspired by the Bolshevik revolution. So I think a lot of people just felt um, unsettled, worried about the future of the country, um, and wanting to have some, some predictability from moment to moment and year to year, and that's kind of what Harding was selling. In addition to this, we saw the rise 
of violent racism in this country. A lot of folks have heard about the Tulsa race massacre in which white mobs attacked black communities in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, still unknown, the total death toll there, maybe up to 300 people. But that was 1921, the year after this. But it wasn't isolated. You had just come out of the red summer of 1919. Smaller but still deadly race riots in other cities, Chicago, Knoxville, Tennessee. Why was this the time that we saw racism, of course, which had been long present, turn so violent? There's, of course, lynching, um, which is, uh, has its heyday in the late 19th and early 20th century. And lynching itself uh, tended to be a kind of mass spectator occasion, right? But then we also have this phenomenon of, of race riots in the late 19th into the early 20th century. Uh, you know, the NAACP is really founded uh, during the progressive era to try to make uh, this level of racial violence visible and of concern to other Americans, particularly because it's not just happening in the South. And by 1919, you're seeing it happen uh, in places like Chicago. Washington, D.C. has another really serious uh, race riot in 1919. And I think that the war itself tended to fuel this kind of racial violence, in part because while you had a segregated military, uh, you had black troops that were moving into different parts of the country. You're seeing a kind of rise in what the 1920s is going to become known as a kind of uh, new Negro consciousness, uh, Harlem Renaissance. Right? So you're beginning to see uh, changes in the ways that uh, black people are claiming citizenship, and that is really producing a backlash. I think it's also worth noting in 1919 that uh, this is very tied up in uh, a broader conversation about race and immigration that isn't just about uh, kind of black and white within the United States, but is about kind of ideas about racial hierarchy that really prioritize people from Northern and Western Europe uh, that involve anti-Semitic ideas, anti-Catholic ideas. Um, and in the 1920s, you're going to see the United States put in place um, a very, very racialized set of immigration restrictions. Those are still a little bit up in the air in 1919 and 1920, so as the election is happening. How do you look at that tension in 1920, anti-immigrant, anti-Black, among other things, and then look at how we're having that conversation now, from the protests to the way the government is looking at immigration to the way our lawmakers are not able to act on immigration? I think in 1920, you were seeing the reaction to uh, a wave of really massive immigration that had happened in the late 19th and early 20th century. And it becomes a moment of backlash um, and of uh, pushing back, of closing off. And, you know, in some ways, we've seen a similar phenomenon here over the last uh, 30 to 40 years. In fact, you know, the, the numbers of people who are foreign born or the children of people born elsewhere living in the United States now are quite similar to what we saw in the early 20th century. And so I think you are seeing some of those, uh, some of those same debates emerge for better and, uh, of course, for worse. How do you see the campaigns that uh, former Vice President Biden and President Trump are running in, in terms of 1920, sort of the messaging that these two men have today? I think you can see elements of each of their campaigns in the politics of 1920. So Biden 
Uh, I don't know that he would appreciate the comparison to Warren Harding, <laughs> but uh, Biden does seem to be running uh, a slightly Harding-esque campaign in the sense that uh, he is trying to meet his historical moment with some big policy ideas, but mostly what he wants to be is a source of stability, um, a source of calm, a return in a moment of craziness in politics, in epidemiology, uh, really a return to a certain kind of normalcy. And I don't think that he will end up using the word normalcy. Uh, that was Harding's word. But I do think uh, he is appealing in some ways uh, to that sense that um, these roiling crises, people, uh, people just want uh, things to settle down a little bit. And like Harding, I think he's banking on the idea. It's just his year, right? I mean, I think the Republicans just thought we can put Warren Harding up because it's his year, right? People are really, really disillusioned with Woodrow Wilson. The Republicans are going to win. And all we have to do is kind of sit here and not say anything too wildly controversial. And, and we're good. And on the Trump side, you know, in many ways, he's drawing on a different, somewhat darker tradition from 1920, uh, the anti-immigrant politics. You know, Calvin Coolidge, who is on, uh, on the ballot as Harding's vice president, um, he is known very far and wide as a kind of law and order candidate. And there's a lot of talk about that phrase, one of Trump's favorite phrases, um, and uh, you know, running around the idea that social turmoil is going to be, uh, to be stamped out. So I think you can see uh, some of those ideas really coming through in Trump's campaign. So what do you think the big picture lesson is from 1920, a time of turmoil, trying to get past turmoil? for today? Well, I think if we just look at the outcome of the 1920 election, it suggests that uh, the candidate who is kind of tapping into the idea of resolving crises, returning to normalcy, taking a deep breath, uh, is more likely to be the winning candidate. Of course, 1920 was a real landslide election. Harding got more than 60% of the vote, um, and the Democrats, uh, the Democrats, I think, ended up with 34, 35%, something like that. But I also think the lesson of 1920 is that whatever happens at the presidential level, these other political ideas and political forces aren't going to go away. Um, so the early 20s see uh, this big push toward immigration restriction you know, around questions of race. The 1920s uh, remain a pretty, uh, a pretty divided and violent decade. Um, and so the presidential election changed certain things in that moment and then, uh, and then not others. Beverly Gage, this was lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks, it was fun. There's a lot to say about the connection between 1920 and 2020, but of course, there are still massive differences. Since 1920, America has been through six more wars, three flu pandemics, and a handful of recessions. But nothing has ever prevented the political parties from holding their conventions in person. Until now. Sitting here today, we don't know how the conventions will play out. And as hard as we might try to take lessons from the past, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that there is a limit to what history can teach us. 
This episode was produced by Rachel Welford and Vika Aronson and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all of our coverage on air and on our website, pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.